Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we're at tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we continue our worship by devoting ourselves, body, mind, and spirit, to what your spirit would say to us. We believe that the Word of God does the work of God in the hearts of the people of God. As you instruct us, as we give you our attention, we pray that we would be motivated with a spiritual incentive that would go beyond a message or beyond a week, but would last our lifetime as we think about what's ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. What motivates people in life? What motivates people to do a good job, to work hard, to produce the right kinds of things? Well, here's an example of what doesn't work. Now, here's an in-company memo to all the employees, and it's regarding sick leave policy. First of all, sickness, no excuse. We will no longer accept your doctor's statement. If you're able to go to the doctor, you're able to come to work. <laughs> leave of absence, that is for an operation you might be having. We will no longer allow this practice. We wish to discourage any thought that you may need an operation. As long as you're employed here, you will need all of whatever you have and should not consider having anything removed. We hired you as you are. And to have anything removed would certainly make you less than what we bargained for. Additionally, too much time is being spent in the restroom. In the future, we will go to the restroom in alphabetical order. For instance, those whose names begin with A will go from 8 a.m. to 8.05 a.m. B will go from 8.05 to 8.10 a.m. and so on. If you're unable to go at your time, you will need to wait until the day your turn comes again. (laughs) Death other than your own. This is no excuse. You can do nothing for them. And we're sure that someone else in a lesser position can attend the arrangements. However, if the funeral can be held in the late afternoon, we will be glad to let you off one hour early, provided that your share of work is done ahead of time to keep the job going in your absence. Death, your own. This will be an accepted excuse. But we would like at least a two-week notice, as we feel it is your duty to teach someone else your job. Now, that would hardly motivate anyone to do anything. That would not give anyone proper incentive. I've always found it interesting that you can go into any bookstore and find bookshelves stacked with motivational books. How to get employees to do what you want them to do. How to give them incentive to do what's right on the job. There's also seminars with the same kind of subject matter. And that's not just for on the job. Even in school, teachers are trying to figure out how can we motivate our students? I was looking at some research papers uh, recently. They conducted tests of um, young students in school and found out that giving them rewards will give them incentive to do homework. 
And it's not just the reward of a job well done. It's external rewards like pencils and pens and notebooks and candy because they realize rewards will motivate people. And of course, whenever there's a crime to be solved, oftentimes there will be a cash reward for any information leading up to the arrest of the individuals in question. I read an article recently about a Nazi war criminal they think is still alive somewhere down in South America named Albert Heim. If he's alive, he's 94 years old. Some believe he is still alive. He was responsible in World War II Nazi Germany removing organs from victims without any anesthesia. Experimental operations. And they're offering $495,000 to see him arrested. A reward, a cash reward. And oftentimes in all of these cases... Cash or other external rewards are given to get people to just do the right thing because they know that it works. It provides motivation. But here's a question. What is it that motivated guys like Paul the Apostle? Just think for a moment what Paul went through. He was willing to travel long distances to suffer heat and cold and fatigue and shipwreck and being beaten up and antagonism and jail time over and over and over again. What motivated him to do that? What made him tick? Or you could say, what motivated guys like David Livingstone? to be educated in Hamilton, Scotland, get a medical degree as a doctor, and then give his life as a missionary in Africa. Why would he do that? Or Hudson Taylor, or E. Stanley Jones to go to India. What gave these people incentive? Well, Paul answers that question in these verses that we look at tonight, and the answer is found in this phrase, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. That is, that in heaven, after we die, at some point, we will be given rewards based upon what we do in this life for Christ. Don't misunderstand. You don't get into heaven that way. You get into heaven by faith. But your rewards, once you get to heaven, are based upon works. So you might say, you get into heaven by the finished work of Christ, but you will get rewarded in heaven based upon your works done on the earth. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, three verses only tonight. Verse 9, Therefore, and it's good that we have covered this section in a previous study in this series, because we know what is before this. Therefore, We make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For, or because, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. This evening, I want to look at, in these three verses, a threefold incentive that drove Paul the Apostle. A threefold incentive in three directions. 
and we want to make it our own. So we want to look at the ambition, his ambition. We want to see if it's our ambition, our ambition Godward in view of who God is and what he has done. What's our goal, our ambition? Second, our heavenward motivation. What makes us follow that passion? And then finally, our earthward occupation. Let's go back to verse 9. We have only three verses. We want to look at them very carefully. Therefore, we make it our aim. Or that's where we're pointing. Here's our goal. Whether present or absent, whether I live or die. Remember he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Whether I live here on this earth or I am with the Lord in person to be well-pleasing to Him. Now, verse 9 is Paul's stated goal for his life. This is the Apostle Paul's purpose statement. This verse, this idea, forms the grid through which every single thing was filtered in Paul's life. I'd like you to listen to that verse in the Amplified Bible. We are constantly ambitious and we strive earnestly to be well-pleasing to Him. Do you understand then, Pleasing Christ was Paul's lifelong passion, his ambition. It was his lifelong and eternal ambition to please Christ. Question, do you think that's commonplace today? Would you say that this stated goal and passion of Paul, is this commonplace or is this the exception rather than the rule? I just, I wonder what, what we, if we were to take a poll and I won't do it for time. I believe it's very rare. It's certainly not what the world lives for. It's certainly not the passion and goal of unbelievers. But I'll go a step further. I believe among most Christians, this passion and ambition to live with the utmost goal of pleasing Christ is rare. Very rare. Even Paul the Apostle, when he was looking around for a partner in ministry, he talked about young Timothy as being like-minded And he said in Philippians 2, For I have have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Boy, that's an interesting phrase. Of all the people that I know in the churches that I frequent, says Paul, I know only one person who thinks like I think, and that's Timothy. The same goal, the same passion. Now, oftentimes, a single word or phrase will sum up an entire person's life. Golf. Fishing. Running. Cars. Painting. Music. In fact, there are even bumper stickers. I'd rather be whatever it would be. They would rather be doing. That's their goal. That's their passion. That's what they love to do more than anything else. And sometimes people will be bold enough and honest enough to say it. They'll say, my life is music, or my life is bicycling, or my life is painting. It's the stated goal of their life. Question, what is your bumper sticker? If there's one word or phrase that sums up what you're about, what would that be? I'd like you just to think about that through tonight and through this week. Because we know what Paul's was. He stated it in so many places, not only here, but Philippians 1, 21. For me, he said, to live is 
Christ. And to die is gain. It's gain because to live is Christ. So what could be better than living for Christ? Dying and being with Christ. That's his stated goal. I got a question for you. Do you know why you were made? Do you know why you were made? Why you are here on this earth? What purpose do you have? Why are you here? Because you'll often hear people say, I was made to do that. Ever hear that phrase? I was made for this. What were you made for? What was I made for? Revelation 4.11 tells us exactly. Here is the anthem that will be sung in heaven. For you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. You know why you're here? You know why you were made? Simple. To please God. To please God. That's what Paul says his goal and aim in life was. To please Him. That was his goal. Now, admit this too. That is the very antithesis of what this world says you should live for. You live in a world that lives for itself and tells everyone who lives in it to live for themselves, right? It's in all the advertisement. I just took a little snapshot of a few different companies that advertise and uh, you could pick up on that. Ericsson Electronics, their theme, Make Yourself Heard. T-Mobile, A Better World for You. Airtel Cellular, express yourself, one airline's company, embrace your dreams, one magazine, acquire what you desire, L'Oreal Cosmetics, because you're worth it, Budweiser Beer, for all you do, this Bud's for you, and finally Sprite, obey your thirst. You see how everything in life gets measured on a scale of personal pleasure. And that same warped thinking has even crept into the church. Here's the truth. The more you do as you please, the less you will be pleased with what you do. And you'll want something else. But the more you live to please God, the more you will be pleased with your life. That's how we were made. Now, a follow-up question to, to that and looking at this verse is, what made Paul this way? What, what gave Paul the motivation for that ambition? If that was his ambition and passion. What is it that fueled that? Why was Paul that way? Well, he answers that. There's two things that gave Paul this motivation, and both of these things were yet future to Paul. One was the future glory the second was future judgment. Now follow me carefully. Future glory, future judgment. Those two things motivated everything Paul did in life. Future glory, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 5. We know that when this house, this body is dissolved, we have an eternal house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We groan earnestly desiring. He's talking all about the future glory. Also, the future judgment. What he calls here the judgment seat of Christ. And notice in verse 10 is the word for or because. Here's the heavenward motivation. Here's the second slice of this message. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now this verse, verse 10, describes a scene that's going to take place 
in our future. You will be there. If you're a Christian, you will be there. If you're not a Christian, you'll be at another judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. I'll talk about briefly that in a minute. But this describes a scene in the future that you will be at. For it says, notice, we must all appear. Every one of us. And he's writing to believers. We must all appear. When you appear at this scene, it will be a time of evaluation and conclusion. Because it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And then finally, after the verdict is rendered, you're going to receive a reward. Or not. You'll either receive one or lose a reward because it says that each one may receive. So this scene that is described is a place of revelation, a place of reckoning, and a place of receiving. Revelation, reckoning, and receiving. The judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'd like to, in the time remaining, unpack that for us. I want to unpack these verses and these thoughts. First of all, notice the term judgment seat. There's two words in English, not in Greek. It's one word. It's the word bematos. Bematos. And it means a raised platform. We will all stand before the bematos of Christ, a raised step. Now, here's the root word of that word bematos. The root word means the distance covered by a step of the foot. And eventually it came to mean a raised step. And eventually, a raised and exalted position of an official like a judge. And eventually, it meant the judgment seat. And in every Greek town in the ancient world was a raised platform in town called the Bematos. From that place, speeches were given. From that place, laws were given also to the people. Verdicts were handed down. He's writing to the Corinthians, right? There was a Bematos in Corinth. I've been there. I've stood there. And four years before this letter was written, Paul was also at that Bematos. Acts 18, verse 12. It says, And they rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, the Bematos. Now get this. Every Greek citizen, at one point in his or her life, had to be a judge on the Bema seat. We would call it a jury, really, very similar to today. And the members of the jury were each given two bronze discs, a hollow disc and a solid disc. A hollow disc was for the guilty verdict, a solid disc for the acquittal verdict. So they would hear the case, and then there was a little urn made out of bronze up on that raised bematas, that platform. And they would place their disc inside, they would collect all the verdicts that each juror gave. That's the idea of the judgment seat of Christ. But it was also the judgment seat, a place of giving out awards or rewards. And that was because of the Olympic Games. They sort of took that term and applied it to themselves. Now, next month are the Olympics in Beijing. And so it's fitting to even talk about this. The first Olympics started... In 776 B.C., it was for men only. There were foot races, chariot races, javelin throwing, boxing, and wrestling, and that was about it. At the end of the competition, all of those who participated would be brought before a bematos, a raised platform, and there were judges who would give out awards, or you would lose a reward 
if you didn't compete very well. And what kind of crown, that's what they got, crowns back then, what kind of crown did they get if you won first place in the Olympics? A little crown of leaves. That's it. You win, you get a little crown of leaves on your head, a laurel wreath that would fade away in a couple days. All that labor for a leaf? Yep, all that labor for a leaf. That's what Paul has in mind, and he uses this analogy in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. little crown of leaves that will fade away in a week. But we do it for an imperishable crown. It's all about motivation. It's all about working now and serving now to win a prize. They do it for an imperishable crown. Probably the most grueling, formidable bike race in the world is the Tour de France. 2,000 miles of rugged terrain, eating and drinking on the run. One participant in that race called it an annual madness. It was so grueling. He said it is the hardest thing you can imagine. Now, when you're done with the race, if you win it, what's your prize? $10,000? $100,000? Just a little bicycle jersey. That's it. If you win, you get a little special bicycle jersey and, and the ability to say, I won the Tour de France. You get where Paul's coming from then in that verse that I just quoted? They do it for a perishable crown. We serve and work for Christ now for an imperishable crown. Okay, what kind of judgment is this Bema Seat judgment of Christ? Let me first tell you what it's not. It is not the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 where the wicked are judged after the millennial kingdom and banished forever. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, believers will never ever have to face their sins. Hallelujah. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. So... The judgment seat of Christ doesn't determine your fate. That's settled. You're saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's not that judgment. It's not for your sins. It's not for your eternal destiny. Nor is the Bema Seat of Christ some spiritual competition where you're kind of comparing yourself with another person. You can sing, my mansion's bigger than your mansion. There's not going to be any of that in heaven. You know, some of us are afraid that come our judgment day that God's going to throw in the videotape or the DVD and everything you've ever said is going to be blared everywhere in heaven and people are going to go, you did that, said that. Right? That's sort of the idea. I heard about a preacher who uh, went to heaven and um, he noticed that there was a New York taxi cab driver also in heaven. He got a bigger reward and a higher status in heaven and he was 
a little bit angry at that. The preacher went to St. Peter. Of course, he's always present in all these jokes. And uh, he said, Peter, I don't understand. I've devoted my whole life to loving my congregation and, and uh, doing the best that I could. And Peter said, look, Reverend, it's our policy in heaven to reward results. Now, when you preached, what happened? He sort of hung his head and said, well, a lot of people did fall asleep when I preached. Peter said, exactly. Now, when, when people got in this guy's taxi cab, not only did they stay awake, they prayed the whole time. So, not going to be like that. Not going to be like that. Not going to be a comparison with others. Because where it says in verse 10, they will receive, you will receive for oneself. It's in the middle voice. It's reflective. You're going to receive for your own deeds what you've done and what you deserve. So what is this judgment seat? What's it all about? This is the evaluation and reward for whatever you did on earth to serve Jesus Christ. Again, we are not saved by good works. But we are saved to do good works. Right? It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, those words, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. And throughout the New Testament, the Bible teaches that there will be rewards in heaven and position that will be determined by what you do now on earth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy. Matthew 25, he talked about the parable of the talents, or using temporal resources. Jesus will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, Therefore, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus says, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And then, how many times in the Sermon on the Mount did Jesus say, and when you do alms and when you pray, don't do it in public. For those who do it in public, they've already received their Reward, do it in secret, and you will be rewarded openly. Here's a question. When does that take place, that you will be rewarded openly? That is this judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just go back one book. Let's do this quickly, because this is a parallel passage to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that is something that's going to last, wood, hay, straw, those things that won't last. Notice, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, 
yet so as through the fire. This is a final assessment of what Christians do from the time they're saved to the time they get to heaven. Another text is Romans 14, verse 10, where it should end all backbiting and bickering against another brother or sister. Paul says, Why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So listen, folks. God has a record in heaven of everything done on earth by saved and unsaved. Saved and unsaved. There's a little passage tucked at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. It says, Those who feared the Lord and meditated on Him, a book of remembrance was written for those who feared the Lord. Their lives were motivated by that. Here's a question. When will this happen? When, when will this judgment take place? I don't know. Isn't that a good answer? I don't know. I have an idea. Let me tell you what some say. Some say it happens one by one. As you die, one by one, Bema Seed judgments takes place. You leave your body. You're present with the Lord. You are judged and rewarded accordingly. Others believe that you'll be rewarded in the intermediate heaven from the between your death and the coming of the Lord at the rapture. Still others believe it will take some place sometime between the rapture and the second coming during the tribulation upon the earth. It's just an opinion, but here's my hunch. I think it's going to take place perhaps between the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom. And this is why I say so. I know we don't have much time, so I want you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. I'm always interested in this kind of timing stuff that is given. Daniel, chapter 12. Let's just look at this, and you can meditate on it later. Last few verses of Daniel. Verse 10, many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do so wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. Now, we know that it will be three and a half years in the tribulation period from the abomination of desolation set up by the Antichrist till Jesus comes back. Two times in Revelation, Revelation chapter 11 and 12, it gives the exact number of days, 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years according to the ancient 360 day per year calendar rendering. Well, here in verse 11... We have an additional 30 days. What's going to happen? Don't know exactly. My guess will be the judgment of the nations, as outlined in Matthew chapter 25, the sheep from the goats that Jesus described. But notice in verse 12, there's 45 more days given. Blessed is he. Happy is the one who makes it all the way to the 1,335th day. Why? For what? Well, I'm going to guess again. Number one, to mop up after Armageddon. Number two, to set up 
for the millennium, the kingdom age, the government for the kingdom age. There will be topographical changes that will happen worldwide on the renewed earth. Perhaps number three, during this time period, will be the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, where individual believers during that time will be prepped, evaluated, and their judgment given for their future. Now, it's an interesting little phrase in a parable that Jesus gave, the parable of the nobleman in Luke chapter 19, where he says, You have been faithful over little. I will give you authority over ten cities. He could be speaking of ruling in the millennium upon the earth. Okay. Enough said with that. Let's go back and finish out that last verse very quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. We have to take verse 11 because it says, knowing therefore. See that? That means the thought connects. So we have Paul's ambition, his motivation, and his occupation. It should be our ambition. It should be our motivation, and it should be our occupation. Watch it. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust well known in your consciences. What does that mean? I'll tell you what most people say it means. Most people say terror of the Lord shouldn't be there. The Greek word is phobos, fear. It should simply be the fear of the Lord. The, the reverential awe of the Lord should motivate a believer, which is true. I, I do agree with that. And it could mean that. It could simply mean knowing that we're going to be rewarded or lose our reward, depending on what we did and how we did it, we should persuade as many Christians as we can to live the right way. could mean that. It could be simply written to get Christians to say, look, I I don't want to in the end say, why did I waste my time on meaningless pursuits and meaningless things in life and meaningless advances and investments? And I could have been investing in the kingdom. Why all that energy and stuff that doesn't really matter? He could mean that. Or perhaps the word terror is a good translation. Now just follow me here. Knowing the terror of the Lord. The Greek word phobos is a general word that can mean anything from generalized fear to panic and anxiety. And he could have this idea in mind. Yeah, we're going to get judged and we're going to be in glory and we're going to be rewarded but there's more than just us so i want to share one last scripture with you this i I got to have you turn to it first peter chapter four i was reading this this morning first peter chapter four verse 17 i think it'll help put it all together For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, verse 18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? In other words, it's going to be so awesome for us it's going to be an absolute terror to others who don't know Christ. 
And that should motivate us to persuade as many unbelievers as possible to be right with God. Either way, either interpretation works because both of these things are true. The truth is, everyone will stand before God at some point for something. Either salvation, if you're an unbeliever and then taken away, or service works, and that is the Bema Seat of Christ. There was one night where a, a, a preacher asked a group of Sunday school kids. He said, how many of you want to go to heaven? And everybody raised their hand except one little boy, arms folded. He kept going like this. And so the preacher stooped over and said, young man, don't you want to go to heaven? And he said, you know, no. And he goes, you mean to tell me you don't want to go to heaven when you die? And the little boy said, oh, well, when I die, sure. But it sounded like you're trying to get up a group to go tonight. Christian, when you die, you're going to heaven. You're not going to go burn your sins off anywhere. You're going to go directly to heaven. But until that day comes, you have a task. Until that night comes, you have a task. And that is to persuade people. As Thomas Guthrie, the old Puritan, used to say, heaven will be a time for enjoyment. This earth is the time for employment. Isn't that what Jesus said? Work while it is yet day, for the night cometh when no man can work. C.T. Studd used to put it this way. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. What would happen if we filtered all of our hobbies, all of our interests, all of our passions, all of our ambitions through that single grid of am I living to please Christ? Why should that matter? Because of the future glory and because of the future scrutiny called the judgment seat of Christ for every believer that will determine our reward or lack thereof in heaven. That's a part of our future as well. Now knowing the terror of the Lord, we always want to persuade men. And tonight... You may not be walking with God at all. You may not have any relationship with Jesus Christ at all. You may be living totally for yourself. But you've come tonight because you thought, there's got to be more to life than what I've already experienced. Could there be something else? Could I actually feel forgiven and with purpose and meaning and direction? Yes. It takes a thing called repentance. Where you're willing to turn from your sin and turn your life over to Christ. He's the only one that will get you to heaven. I suggest you do that tonight. And if any means I could ever use to persuade anyone who's not saved, I'll do it. So if God is speaking to your heart about your future, then tonight's the night to make that choice. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, It is, in one sense, very humbling to read the words of the Apostle Paul, to get the inside scoop into what made a guy travel the ancient world by foot, with opposition, rocks thrown at him, insults thrown at him, put in prison, false accusations, 
hated by religious groups, hated by secular groups, and then just go to the next town and do it again. Now we understand why. Whether he was living or whether he would be absent from the body and present with the Lord, his sole ambition was to please you. That's because he knew that he would be in glory and he knew he would be rewarded for what he did on earth and so he wanted to do it with all, 100%, until the day he passed. Lord, I pray that we will not soon forget this teaching. And I, I too pray for those who have also gathered with us tonight who don't yet know you who have not been living for you, who have been living for self. They've done as they pleased, but they're not pleased with what they've done. They're empty tonight. They want to find purpose, joy, forgiveness. We know it only comes through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that some more yet would surrender to him tonight. As our heads are bowed, as you're thinking about your life and decisions you've made, I wonder if tonight you would be willing to say, Yes, I take Christ as my Savior and my Master. Maybe you've never consciously done that, or maybe you did that years ago, or you made some choice. You're not even quite sure what it was. All you know is that your life isn't what it should be. I believe God is calling you to Himself. And I'd like you to respond. If that fits your description, I'd like you as we're praying right now for you to raise your hand and say, Skip, pray for me. I'm going to give my life to Christ right now, tonight. I'm not going to wait a moment longer. I'm going to give Him my life. Raise your hand up. You're saying yes to Jesus Christ. Raise it up high so I can see it. Or if you want to come back to Him, you raise your hand up. And I'll pray for you as we close this service. God bless you, ma'am. Up to my left. Anyone else? Right up in the front. God bless you. In the family room, a couple of you. In the back. Who else? Who else? God bless you. And then way in the back, a couple more of you. Heavenly Father, in this very unique and special moment where time meets eternity, I pray that you will draw these to the Savior in a meaningful way so that they'll never, ever forget this night, the night of new beginnings for them, the night of forgiveness, the night where they were freely given everlasting life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.